Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teens, teens, teens at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <laughs> hey, Jewel. <laughs> it's like, Lauren could just do the whole intro. I'll just it's do the fine. whole intro. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever. We'll mix it up. It's just so you know that, again, that it's this fresh. Is, this is fresh. It's live. It's, it's not live. No, it's live. It's live. We're recording this at 6 a.m. on Tuesday. Oh, my God. Could you even imagine? I would not be nearly this pep <laughs> at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday. So there you go. That's for you guys. <sighs> so, Lauren, you know how sometimes you just got like a pile of books and yes. you're like, yep, I really, ah, I bought this book. I really can't wait to read it. Yes. That, that's been me for the last, oh, yeah. I don't know, eight years. So <laughs> wow. anyway, there's this book that came out a couple years ago and I was like really excited to read it. And you know what? I finally got around to reading it this summer. Okay. And one of the chapters in this book was one of the greatest things I've ever read. Get and I here. decided that it is, it was the perfect idea for an episode. So this story Okay. It has everything. Okay. It has art. It has music. <gasps> literature. What? Nazis. What? Insanity. Oh. Sex. Ooh. Lots of sex. Oh. Nazis. Everything. Sex with Nazis? <laughs> oh, I don't, don't give it away. So today <laughs> I am talking to you about Alma Mahler. When you said Alma Mahler to me earlier, uh-huh. I thought you were, just, you. you were just mispronouncing Alma Mater. No. Okay. I can pronounce things, Lauren. Well, I'm just saying, like, I don't, I've never heard of this person. Is it <laughs> which a person? Is, which, <laughs> yes, Alma Mahler is a person. Um, so, and when you, we'll get into it. Okay. Um, so, I got a lot of information from a really awesome book called It Ended Badly, 13 of the Worst Breakups in History by Jennifer Wright. <sighs> And then there's also a website called Alma, which is the history section for a 1996 play based on her life by the Israeli writer Joshua Sobal. So um, these are two really great sources to learn more about. I'm so excited. So Alma Maria Schindler was born in Vienna, Austria on August 31st, 1879 to landscape painter Emil Schindler and singer Anna Sophie Bergen. 1879. What a great time to be alive in Austria. (laughs) The Schindler family shared their apartment with her father's artist colleague, Julius Victor Berger. That's nice. Look, everybody's everybody's saving this money. Is they great. all live together. Golden age. This is nice, right? Wrong. Because Alma's mother, Anna, began an affair with Julius and she got pregnant, like, very quickly. Well, they're in the same house. They're in the same apartment. What the hell? So Alma's half-sister, Greet, was born in 1881. That same year, Emil won a big art prize and they were and he was able to move the family out of the apartment where his best friend and wife were getting it on. Jeez. And um, Emil received a commission from Crown Prince Rudolf in 1887 as part of a grand project called the Austro-Hungarian Monarchy in Word and Picture. And wow. he became one of the most important artists of the Habsburg monarchy. So... By the way, yeah, the Habsburgs still happening in 1881. Jeez. Uh, the Habsburgs Empire is an umbrella term used by historians for the lands and kingdoms of the House of Habsburg, especially for those of the Austrian branch. Um, they came to rule in Austria in 1279. Oh, my God. Went through a couple of name changes and like controlled by the Holy Roman Empire sure. for a while. Who wasn't? But by this point in time, it was called the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it didn't actually formally collapse until the end of the First World War in Oh, my God. That's so long. Yes. So, Alma's dad, super important artist to the Habs. Clearly. So, Alma loved being around music, art, and literature. Um, her father felt that it was really important for his daughters to have a good education and to learn the arts. Good. Alma spent all of her free time at her father's studio, which was too bad because no one was keeping an eye on her mother, Anna, who started yet another affair. Come on. This time with Carl Mull, a student and assistant of Emile's. Oh, jeez. She Anna, can't. Getting. Do you ever hear the term "Don't shit where you eat," Anna? I There's mean, other people out there, yeah, than close associates of your husband. People who share the same living space as you and your husband. What? <sighs> well, Alma's father Emil died in Ugh. 1892 of an mm. appendix infection. Oh no, that's Yikes. a bad way to go. Um, and almost 13 when he died. Um, almost immediately, her mother went and got married to Carl Mall, which Alma took as an unforgivable betrayal of her beloved father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in 1899, Alma's sister Maria was born. 
Um, a few years earlier in 1897, the Vienna Secession, which was an art movement formed in 1897 by a group of Austrian artists who had resigned from the Association of Austrian Artists because we all need to be part of a club. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Vienna Secession was founded and Karl Mahl, who was Alma's stepfather, was elected vice president okay. under President Gustav Klimt. Oh, yeah. So Alma kind of spent her teenage years surrounded by a lot of famous powerful men sure uh when she was 17 alma fell in love with gustav klimt oh no in her diary she wrote quote gustav klimt entered my life as my first great love but i was an innocent child totally absorbed in my music and far removed from life in the real world the more i suffered from this love the more i sank into my own music and so my unhappiness became a source of my greatest bliss um carl mall found her stepfather found out about 35 year old gustav klimt kissing his teenage stepdaughter and he flipped out on him oh i'm Sorry, I didn't realize Klimt was into this. Oh, uh, ew. Yep, Klimt, super into Alma. She's beautiful, okay? Of course she you is. You have to keep that in mind. She's she's everything that you want a woman to be in... <laughs> At 17 or 16 or whatever. Austria. Good Lord. Um, so Carl flipped out on Gustav and was like, get out of here. So he forced Klimt to leave and he pro- he made him promise to stay away from Alma. Mm. Um, so Gustav Klimt, you might know... Yes. I mean, you know, but um, he's best known for his paintings, wow. murals, sketches, and other objets d'art, primarily those of the female body. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really known for his golden phase. So you know him for paintings like The Kiss and Adele Blockbauer, about whom they made the movie Woman in Gold in mm-hmm. 2015. So first, the very first person she ever like falls in love with, Gustav Klimt, famous artist. Jeez. In the spring of 1900, 20-year-old Alma met composer Alexander von Zemlinsky, who was considered one of the most promising figures on the Viennese music scene. Um, She noted in her diary, which, oh, by the way, she wrote a lot in her diary. Oh, boy. um, Quote, a caricature, chinless, small, with bulging eyes and a maniacal way of conducting. Yet he pleased me exceptionally. (laughs) Wink. I had to have him. I had to have his chinless, bulbicide face. So Alma and Zemlinski spent a long time talking about Wagner, as all good 20-year-old girls do, uh, and Zemlinski became a tutor to her. So he taught her musical composition and poetry, and they soon began a stormy love affair, even though she had called him, quote, a small, ugly gnome. (laughs) He um, pleased her with his, quote, virtuoso hands. Oh, Whoa! (laughs) So here's a problem. He was also Jewish and her previous tutor had mm, indoctrinated her with some anti-Semitic thoughts. Oh no. So Zemlinsky was basically doomed from the start. Alma loved the work of Nietzsche, Mm. especially the sentence, quote, whoever falls should also be given a push. Which became Alma's guiding motto. Oh, and from which later many of her unsuccessful admirers would experience. So, so she's not, she's not a good person. Alma is not the hero of the story, everyone. Okay. All right. Good to know. Um, Alma was basically an anti Semite and a Nazi sympathizer. Okay. So we'll get that right out of the way at the start. This is not a woman that we have on a platform here. (laughs) Great. A pedestal. She could be on a platform. I don't know. But anyway. It's, this she's is not a, in a good place. This is just an interesting thing. Okay. So um, Von Zemlinski, he was best known for the Lyric Symphony in 1923, which was a seven movement piece for soprano, baritone, and orchestra. It was set to poems by the Bengali poet Rabindranath Tagore, but in a German translation. Oh. So it's a very, it was a very popular piece. So, all right. Gustav Klimt, Alexander Von Zemlinski. Great. She's like... 20 years old right now okay (laughs) this brings us to november 1901 at a friend's house alma met celebrated conductor gustav mahler (gasps) who was currently serving as the director of the vienna court opera mahler obviously immediately fell right in love with her beauty as all of these men did and proposed to her a few weeks after they met Mm, she was 21 he was 40 In December of that year, he wrote her a 20-page letter in which he outlined what their life as a married couple would be, but he asked her to abandon her dreams of writing and composing because, quote, how do you imagine both wife and husband as composers? Do you have any idea how ridiculous and subsequently how much such an 
idiosyncratic rivalry must end up dragging us both down? How will it be if you happen to be just in the mood, but have to look after the house for me or get me something I happen to need? And if you are to look after the trivialities of life for me? And then she wrote in her diary, quote, he thinks nothing at all of my art and thinks a great deal of his own. And I think nothing of his art and a great deal of my own. So he was basically like, you can't, we, uh, you're not going to be able to also be a composer because what if I need a sandwich? <laughs> there are crimson flags left, right, and center in this situation. Pew, pew. 20 page letter first of all it's amazing that she got through the whole thing you know that she was like dear alma i'm gonna need you to stop composing you're beautiful and we should get married but i don't know maybe (laughs) this is what our life is gonna be like (laughs) bullet one Uh, well, you know, as was the time, they got engaged anyway, uh, right before Christmas, and then they were married in March 1902 in Vienna at the Karlskirche. The couple moved into an apartment near the opera house, and their household included two maids and an English governess for their daughter, Maria, who was born in November that year. Life together with Mahler was completely different from the life to which she had become accustomed at her parents' house. Um, Gustav Mahler hated socializing, and he attached great importance to a regular daily routine in order to manage his workload. So Alma felt isolated and that she had been degraded to the level of housekeeper. And worst of all, she was bored. Yeah. Uh, So these feelings didn't change after the birth of the couple's second daughter, Anna Justina, who was born in June 1904. Um, Also, according to Alma, who we shall discuss as a narrator later, uh, Gustav told her that no one would care about her artistic talents if she weren't beautiful. <gasps> Ew. Ew. All right. Ew. Ew. He sounds like the worst. Ew. Uh, in July 1907, Gustav and Alma's daughter Maria, who was just five years old, died of diphtheria. And for Mahler, the death of his beloved child was devastating, and it increased the gulf between him and Alma. She blamed him for composing... Uh, Kinder Totenlieder, which was songs on the death of children in their home. Like, she was like, that's why she died, because you wrote songs on the death of children. Also, um, suspicious? Yes. Um, And that same year, at a routine examination, Mahler was found to be suffering from a heart defect, which severely restricted his activities. So Gustav then withdrew from the Vienna music scene, and he took an appointment in December 1907 with the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. Oh, hey. I guess it was going to be, like, less work for him. Um, so a couple years later, while Mahler was on a retreat in 1910, um, Alma consoled herself for what she considered her years of deprivation by hanging out with a young architect named Walter Gropius, oh, hey. who would later become a leading figure in modern architecture by founding the Bauhaus yeah. School. Um, so after all the years with Mahler, her longing to be taken seriously went nuclear. Um, so her affair with Gropius um, came to light when the architect mistakenly addressed a love letter intended for Alma to Gustav Mahler. Oh, Can you imagine? <laughs> Get out of oh, here. what's this uh, new bill? Okay, bill in the mail. Oh, look at this really nice handwritten letter. Why does it smell like perfume and has uh, a pair of lips on the back? What? Come on, Gropius. Get Whoops. it together. <laughs> so Alma continued her relationship with Gropius in secret, um, and Mahler's 10th symphony was created in light of this discovery. And the manuscript for the symphony reveals how Mahler was going through the hardest crisis of his life at the time. Uh, Mahler began focusing intensively on Alma now, dedicating his 8th symphony to her, the premiere of which in September 1910 was considered to be one of his greatest musical triumphs. Uh, Mahler also had five of Alma's own compositions published in 1910 with premieres in Vienna and New York. So this was kind of like, he was like, oh, she's not kidding. She's going to leave me. Uh, All right. Mm, I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll publish some of her songs. Too little, too late, Gustav. Sorry. So I don't feel bad for him. So this guy she's cavorting with, um, Walter, Walter Gropius, is best known for founding the Bauhaus, an art school that churned out pioneering architects and designers. Um, the requirement that the architect and designer undergo a practical crafts training to acquaint himself with materials and processes. And also, this was also part of the international style, which was related to modernism, which had an emphasis on volume over mass and the use of lightweight mass-produced industrial materials with flat surfaces and glass with no ornament or color. So just really yeah really just monumental and boring and flat and yeah but famous but you know extremely famous yep 
So um, on his last trip to the United States, Gustav Mahler fell seriously ill. Um, he conducted his final concert in New York in February 1911, and then he traveled with Alma back to Europe. The couple reached Vienna on the evening of May 12th. Shortly after midnight on May 18th, 1911, and you know where I'm going with this since I told you what time it was, <laughs> Gustav Mahler died at the age of 51. Um, huh. He was buried in Grinzing Cemetery alongside his beloved daughter, Maria Anna. And per his wishes, the burial was devoid of any ceremony, and his gravestone only just mentions his name. Like, that's all it says on it. God, he sounded Gustav like a real... <laughs> just a real bore. So... Again, just to recap, Gustav Mahler, best known for symphonic compositions. Um, he eventually composed 10 symphonies, each very emotional and large in scale. He also wrote several song cycles with folk influence, and his work is characterized as part of the Romanticism movement uh, that basically often focused on death and afterlife. He's known for his choral work, Das Lied von der Erde, The Song of the Earth, and the song cycle, Lieder eines Fahrenden Gesellen, Songs of Wayfarer. Beautiful. My German is. Mm. Oh, stunning. My apologies to Germany. Um, so following Gustav's death, Alma okay. basically in the prime of her life. And thanks to a widow's pension and her inheritance from Gustav, uh, she was a rich woman. So she Ugh. was, shall we say, very sought after in Vienna. Yeah, as early that. as the autumn of 1911. Like Gustav, not even cold in the ground yeah. yet. Um, Alma had a brief relationship with composer Franz Strecker. And later that year, she got together with Dr. Paul Kammerer, who offered Alma a position as an assistant at his biological institute in the Viennese Prater, where she collaborated for several months on experiments with praying mantises. Okay. Um, so you know how female praying mantises sometimes eat their male mate after copulation? Yes. This is honest to God, a perfect analogy for Alma in her life. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, so she ended the relationship with... Um, um, with Cameron in the spring of 1912 after he threatened to shoot himself at Mahler's grave. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> little dramatic. A little All dramatic. Right. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Walter Gropius avoided reuniting with Alma in Vienna after Gustav's death because he was mad that she went back to having a physical relationship with her husband while they were together in the United States. Cool, 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 cool. Um, in December 1911, um, Alma and Gropius finally broke up. For now, um, oh, their relationship was already overshadowed by Alma's excessive association with the enfant terrible of the Viennese <laughs> art scene, the young Oscar Kokoschka. Oh, Kokoschka! So, what? Karl Moll, if who, if you recall, was Alma's stepfather, commissioned Kokoschka to come and create a portrait of Alma. Um, during dinner on the evening of April 12th, 1912, Kokoschka immediately fell in love with her. Mm. Um, he wrote, quote, how beautiful she was, how seductive behind her mourning veil. I was bewitched. Oh, my God. The next day, she received his first love letter, which was followed by 400 more. No. <laughs> Oh my God. So let's check in. She basically had already bagged the most famous musician of the time. Sure. And then the most famous architect of the time. Yes. So why not go after the most famous artist? Yeah. All right. Make it a, a hat trick. Yeah. So apparently many of Oscar's early drawings were of children in corpse-like positions. Mm -hmm. But don't worry, this didn't scare off Alma. Um, don't you remember? She just broke up with a suicidal guy like yeah, a week she ago. She seems to like this kind of thing. So Alma and Oscar um, lived and traveled together. And when they weren't getting it on, he was painting her. Um, right from the start, Alma dealt with Kakashka's unbridled jealousy. He could Ugh. not bear to see her engage in social contact with other people. Um, Kakashka's jealousy was directed not only toward Alma's living friends and acquaintances but in particular toward her dead husband okay. like he didn't want her to think of her dead husband because it was upsetting to him wow Oscar wow Kakashka. talk about male fragility <laughs> the man is dead what more do you want all right oh boy kakashka oh man yeah around july 1912 alma became pregnant by kakashka um in october though she had the pregnancy terminated and in the hospital Oscar took a piece of the blood-soaked cloth no. from her and carried it home. Quote, that is my only child and will oh. always be so. Oh. He always carried this no. old, dried-up, bloody oh. piece of cloth in his wallet. Shut up. Ew. Ew. What? Ew. <laughs> what? This is the part of the story that I was like, this is why this has to be an episode. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> You're insane. This guy. This guy. This guy. 
What? So Kakashka never overcame his pain at the loss of their child, and he made it the topic of numerous drawings. Um, Kakashka also tried everything to persuade Alma to marry him, but she withdrew from him more and more because he was kind of I'm crazy sorry. and very needy. Yeah. Um, according to Alma, Oscar liked to wear a bright red nightgown of hers around the studio, and he um, aroused himself by talking about murder and other quote, dreadful notions. Wow. Ghoulish, this guy. Yes. Oh, that's a perfect, that is a perfect descriptor of him at this point in time. Um, So Kakasha was looking for a maternal genius and expected to receive care and loving dedication. And in the long term, their relationship could not function. In 1913, he painted Bride of the Wind, an emphatic Baroque picture in which the two lovers are shown swirling through the room. So this is kind of maybe one of his most famous mm-hmm. paintings, is yeah. Bride of the Wind. Um, Alma was actually still in touch with Walter Gropius at this point, but she hadn't told him at all about her relationship with Kokoschka. Um, when, in 1913, Gropius saw Kokoschka's painting, double portrait of Oscar Kokoschka and Alma Mahler. So like, he doesn't, he's not keeping this a secret. Girl. Sure, yeah. So Gropius saw this painting, which was on display at the 26th exhibition of the Berlin secession and then he was like that's it we're not talking anymore so their correspondence completely came to a halt Alma kept trying to break up with Oscar okay (laughs) finally in December 1914 Kokoschka was recruited into the number 15 dragoons regiment which was the most elite cavalry regiment of the Austrian monarchy Um, also she definitely called him a coward in order to force his hand into enlisting oh in the army. man she's she just like dared basically dared him. Veins, this woman um in august 1915 he was seriously wounded on the russian front and newspapers even assumed that he had been killed um alma reacted to the news by fetching from kakasha's studio the letters which she had written him and also taking some of his artwork <laughs> what wow Oh, my God. Okay. She was like, hooray. <laughs> well, all all right. Right. might as well get some Too of the bad. best stuff. He's not dead, though, guys. Oh, Lord. Upon returning home to Vienna in 1918, Oscar was haunted by memories of Alma. Oh, Besides Kakashka's countless paintings and drawings, a brazen life-size doll in the image of Alma testified no. to the suffering he endured as a result of his relationship no. with her. No. No. What? No. <laughs> no. No. My brain can't, I can't absorb it, Julia. Let's talk about the doll. This is the episode that breaks me. Let's talk about the Alma doll. Oh, tell me about the Alma doll. In July 1918, Oscar Kokoschka ordered a life-size doll from the Munich doll maker, Ermain Moose, as a substitute for his long-lost love. It was to be made to look exactly like Alma Mahler. After ordering the commission, he checked a model of the head and made suggestions as to how the work should proceed. Quote, please make it possible that my sense of touch will be able to take pleasure in those parts where the layers of fat and muscle suddenly give way to a sinuous covering of skin. He wrote like a completely normal person to Fraulein Moose in August 1918. Fraulein Moose. She opened that letter and was like, oh, Oh, no. All right, Hans, get to work. (laughs) So the doll took about eight months to complete. And in February 1919, Kokoschka asked to have the doll sent to him. Um, He was like, oh, why can't I? I'm waiting for it. Um, So the ensuing disappointment was huge, probably because he couldn't actually have realistic sex with this doll. It could... Scarcely fulfill his erotic and sexual desires and in the end became no more than kind of a still life model. Wait, wait, wait. He clearly Is ordered he... this doll just to have oh, sex with it. Oh, of course he did. Is he the originator of the sex doll, Julia? Can we make that I, statement? I don't want to make that as a bold I'm statement, just saying but you're, you're hearing about this here <laughs> on this episode, all right? I think we can make that suggestion. And please, this is the first time that I do not want this as a listener submitted trivia. No. If you know if this is true or not, that this is the first instance of a sex doll, I would prefer to remain in the dark and I will ha- I will speak for Julia Co-signed. on this. Yes. Yep. Right. Okay. Just think about it and, and just be like, chuckle mm, and maybe. be on its way. Yeah. No. <laughs> All right. So, so he couldn't have sex with this doll. No. no. But what he did was he dressed her up 
and took her out. No. He <laughs> took her on carriage out. rides. He no. took her to the opera. They went to dinner parties together. No. And no one freaked out. <laughs> no. no one around them freaked out. No one. Oh, that's just Oscar. And, and, his, and his effigy that he's made of his former lover. <laughs> and along with doll. the bloody cloth he's carrying around in his pocket. Oh, my so, God. So... He also hired for this doll a special maid to take care of the doll. Could you imagine? And he started having sex with the maid. So at least he like got, Um, at least something came out of this, I guess. I guess. Um, So he's having sex with the maid and he wrote, quote, though her duty was only to act as a lady's maid to my doll, the destined companion of my life, her sound common sense told her that I would be lacking warmth in my bed. Okay. Gross. 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 Just... Gross. Gross. Um, so <laughs> this is insane. So the artist then took the place of the unhappy lover, and by means of a painterly and very graphic metamorphosis of the doll, he breathed new life into Alma as a figure of art. When Kakashka was questioned on the matter of this fetish in 1931, he said, "Finally, after I had uh, drawn it and painted it over again and again, I decided to do away with it." So, by the way, like he's been like putting makeup on this doll, oh, and my then gosh, like it's a doll, so he's putting paint on it and just like covered, it's, it's like <laughs> speckled, <laughs> like layers. You know, like the hundred layer of foundation challenge. Yeah, it's like that, but on a doll that he's. <laughs> That he's taking to the opera. I hate this so much. Okay. (laughs) Did he he like fireman carry it around? (sighs) Did he just like cradle it in his arms? Oh, that's just awesome. Here we go, you and me. Here we go. (laughs) So here's what he did. He he said, quote, it had managed to cure me completely of my passion. So basically by like having this doll, he got over Alma because he was (laughs) able to channel all of his energy into the sex doll he couldn't have sex with. Oh my God, that's so creepy. So I gave a big champagne party with chamber music during which my maid... Um, Hulda, that's her name. Hulda exhibited the doll in all its beautiful clothes for the last time. When dawn broke, I was quite drunk, as was everyone else. I beheaded it out in the garden and broke a bottle of red wine over its head. (laughs) This man. He's been taking this doll out. (laughs) And then he was like. Put makeup on it. Time to go. Try next to it. He takes it outside. He's like, all right, that's it. He takes a bottle of red wine and. Smooshes and it. basically decapitates it. This is the greatest story ever told. This is amazing. This I is, love this so much. I've been holding this inside me for months now. Oh my God, Julia. I wanted to tell you this on the podcast. This is, thank you so much. I'm so touched. You're welcome. This is a great story. <laughs> so Oscar Kokoschka, best known for intense expressionistic portraits and landscapes like Bride of the Wind and Portraits of the German Elite. He was also a playwright and a novelist. And also his work was included in the Nazi Degenerate Art Exhibit of 1937. Well, so in response, he painted self-portrait as a degenerate artist. So those Nazis. So here's the thing. Mm -hmm. I would never say that I've agreed with a Nazi about anything. But his art was pretty degenerate. He was a degenerate, this guy. <laughs> he was a degenerate. Whoa. He, this guy, I don't say this lightly, was a freak bitch. You know what? Apparently later on he went and married like a completely normal woman and they had like a life together where they like went to church and did the crossword puzzle and like held hands oh my in God, the sunset no. and all this like totally normal stuff. He, it's like he had all this crazy in his system and then he, definitely he got mur- it out. No, he murdered some people. There's no way. There's no, absolutely no way that he was like, and now my doll's decapitated and now I can, now I'm free. I can go and live a normal <laughs> I'm life. free. Absolutely not. No, he was a freak to the end. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Uh, so it's like it's like World War One right now. Okay. Okay. While so while Alma's relationship with Kakashka was still ongoing, Alma once again resumed contact with Walter Gropius. Um, in February 1915, she traveled to Berlin in the company of her friend Lily Leeser with the aim of getting through again to this bourgeois son of a muse. That was what she called him. Oh. Who at long last agreed that they belonged together. So they got married. Um, okay. Their wedding took place in August 1915 in Berlin while he was on leave from serving in combat. So if you remember, this is also like she called Kakashka a coward, made him like go join the army. Yeah. Then she thought he was dead. And then she already got married to Walter Gropius. Holy like how? Yeah. So at the same time, she also turned her attention to the musical legacy of her first husband, Gustav Mahler. She still saw herself mainly as his widow and experienced her managed 
experienced her marriage to the as yet unknown architect Walter Gropius as a step down the social ladder. Wow. She wrote to him, quote, that the doors to the whole world which stand open for the name of Mahler slam shut in the face of the entirely unknown name Gropius. So she's like taunting these men. She's so nasty. Oh my gosh. In October 1916, Alma gave birth to their daughter, Manon, who was baptized that Christmas in Vienna. And to celebrate the occasion, Walter Gropius gave his wife the painting Summer Night on the Beach by expressionist painter Eduard Munch. Oh, okay. During World War I, Alma kept up a salon of sorts in her home. Uh, Composers, writers, painters, conductors, actors, and academics regularly gathered at her house. It was really an elite group of intellectuals who were inspired, promoted, or criticized by her. Mm. In November 1917, a writer friend brought uh, Franz Werfel, who was 27 years old, to an evening gathering at Alma's salon. Uh Unlike Gropius, who had little interest in music, Verful shared Alma's enthusiasm. And in the following weeks, he visited her more frequently in order to make music with her. Yeah. Uh, This was at first not a euphemism. Uh, But while she was still married to Gropius in early 1918, Alma became pregnant by Verful. Good Lord. Mm -hmm. Talk about being her mom all over again. Uh, Am I right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look at that. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, the child that was born, Martin, he was born prematurely and he suffered from hydrocephalus. So he had like a very big swollen head and like a lot of health problems. And he died 10 months later. Um, Gropius had happened to hear a phone conversation between his wife and Verful, and he was forced to acknowledge that he was not the child's father. Oh, So that was like another like, geez, Alma back on her bullshit. Shit. Um, so in any event for Alma, her marriage to Gropius was yet another mixture of social convention and inner emptiness. Um, in October 1920, they divorced. Uh, for a long time, the couple were in dispute over custody of their daughter, Manon. And although the relationship between Verful and Alma Mahler was already public at the time, Gropius actually took the blame upon himself for the failure of his marriage. Um, he let himself be caught in fragrante delicto with a sex worker in a hotel room to bring about a quick divorce. It was like, wow, talk about falling on a sword. Yeah. You know, like, come on. I don't know. Well, she hasn't done anything for you, man. What are you doing? So there was hardly anything left of Mahler's estate by this point, though, since in 1914, Alma had invested a large part of it in war bonds. The remainder was basically eaten up by inflation in the 1920s. Mm. And around this time, Mahler's symphonies were played only occasionally. So income from royalties was basically too low to finance the opulent lifestyle to again, which she had become accustomed. Of course. Um, at age um, 50 in July 1929, Alma married Franz Verfel, who at the time was among the most read authors in the German language. Okay. And amid a climate of growing political radicalization in Austria and neighboring Germany, Alma's notorious anti-Semitism grew. Um, for instance, she made it a condition that Verfel would have to abandon his Jewish faith before marrying her. Um uh, she really wasn't a good person. No, guys. very unkind, <laughs> no. uh, terrible person. No. So in 1938, following the Anschluss, um, Alma and her husband, Verfel, who was actually still Jewish, were forced to flee Austria for France. Um, so they kept a household in Scenery sur mer on the French Riviera from summer 1938 until spring 1940. With the German invasion and occupation of France during World War II and the deportation of Jews and political adversaries to Nazi concentration camps, the couple was no longer safe in France, and they frantically sought to secure their immigration to the United States. They were able to settle in Los Angeles, California, where many German and Austrian immigrants had ended up. So Verfel worked industriously on a novel about St. Bernadette Subrios, um, also known as Bernadette of Lords for all you saint heads out there. (laughs) Um, So this work, The Song of Bernadette, became a U.S. bestseller and it sold 400,000 copies within its first few months on the market. And 20th Century Fox acquired the film rights. Uh, Reviews appeared in numerous American daily newspapers and radio interviews with Verifold were broadcast throughout the country. So yay Yay. for Franz. Mm. During the night of September 13, 1943, Franz Verfel suffered a massive heart attack from which he only gradually recovered. Oh, no. And in the summer of 1945, he was just completing his utopian novel, Star of the Unborn, when his health um, dramatically worsened. And in August 1945, he suffered a further fatal heart attack. Um, Alma herself, curiously, did not attend his funeral. What? Not sure why. Uh, she just maybe because she's awful. 
just didn't go. Um, so Franz Verfel is best known for The 40 Days of Musa Dog, which 1933 novel based on events that took place during the Armenian genocide of 1915. Mm-hmm. Um, also, The Song of Bernadette from 1941, um, which was about the life and visions of the French Catholic saint, which was made into an Oscar-winning Hollywood film of the same name. Oh, hey. Yeah. So Franz Verfel left behind an extensive body of work, which Alma decided to embark on organizing. So in the last 19 years of her life, Thomas Mann described Alma Mahler Verfel as la grande veuve, which is the great widow of Gustav Mahler and Franz Verfel. Uh, but not everyone had nice things to say about her. Uh, yeah. uh, Claire Gall wrote, quote, in order to freshen up her fading charms, she wore gigantic hats with ostrich feathers. Nobody knew whether she wished to appear as a funeral horse pulling a hearse or as a new D'Artagnan. And on top of that, she was powdered, made up, perfumed, and inebriated. This bloated Valkyrie drank like a fish. Whoa. Boom. Claire Gall blowing her up. So Alma Mahler Verfel only revisited her old home city of Vienna briefly in 1947. So her mother had died in the autumn of 1938 and her stepfather Karl Moll and her half-sister Maria, who had both been long-standing members of the Nazi party, committed suicide together in Are, April 1945. What? Like all the all the big Nazi people were just off in themselves just off then. Themselves. Yeah. So Alma's visit home in 1947 revolved mainly around settling financial matters. Um, She ended up um, being in court proceedings with the Austrian state over Edvard Munch's painting, Summer Night on the Beach, which Walter Gropius had given her once, you know, on the occasion of the birth of their daughter. But following Alma's emigration to the United States in 1940, Karl Moll had sold to what is now the Austrian Belvedere Museum. Um, Alma lost the case because she could not credibly substantiate that her stepfather had done this without her consent. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. In 1951, Alma moved to New York, where she bought four small residential apartments and a house on the Upper East Side. She herself lived on the third floor, and she used one apartment as a living area and another as sleeping quarters. Uh, the two apartments on the floor above were used by August Hess, Verfel's former valet, and by her guests. And for quite some time, she had been working on her autobiography based on her diaries. She was initially supported by Paul Frischauer, who was a ghostwriter for her, but they f- had fallen out with one another back in 1947 when he criticized her numerous anti-Semitic slurs and uh, she refused to remove them. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the 1950s, she worked with E.B. Ashton and he too perceived the necessity to censor her diaries due to her anti-Semitic utterances and numerous attacks against people who were still alive. Oh my God. But in 1958, the, the book titled And the Bridges Love appeared in English. And the Bridges and Love? And the Bridges Love. Really? Ah. Really, Alma? Uh. <laughs> so... Alma, Alma Mahler Verfel died in her New York apartment on December 11th, 1964, at the age of 85. Uh, the first funeral ceremony took place two days later, but she was not buried until February 8th, 1965, oh. beside the grave of her daughter Manon in Vienna's Grinzing Cemetery. The obituaries which appeared after her death referred, under the influence of her autobiography, mostly to her marriages and love affairs. Uh, the combination of attraction, admiration, and antipathy, which she triggered in many, is also expressed in a song by satirist Tom Lehrer after her death and that's going to be our um our thinking music here so Alma was not only an articulate well-connected and influential woman but since she outlived her first husband by more than 50 years she was the principal authority on Gustav Mahler's values character and day-to-day behavior oh boy so her two books quickly became the central source material for Mahler scholars and music lovers alike Unfortunately, as scholarship has investigated the pictures she sought to paint of Mahler and her relationship with him, her accounts have increasingly been identified as being written by an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. So these flawed accounts, though, they've had a massive influence, leaving their mark upon several generations of scholars, interpreters, and music lovers, becoming a foundation of the critical and popular literature on Mahler, which is known as the Alma problem. (laughs) Without getting too far into it, here's an example. So of the more than 350 written communications Mahler is known to have written to her, almost suppressed almost 200 so of the like 150 that she did choose to publish she is now known to have made unacknowledged alterations to no fewer than 122 of them that's all of them basically Uh, almost on three occasions Alma even manufactured items by joining together (gasps) separate letters and she also appears to have systematically destroyed everything that she wrote to her husband Mm. the text of only one a single one of her own letters written before they were married is known to survive don't worry, though. Gustav's name, doing okay. Um, after 1945, his compositions were rediscovered by a new generation of listeners, and Mahler then became one of the most frequently performed and recorded of all composers, a position he sustained into the 21st century. Um, in 2016, a BBC music 
Magazine survey of 151 conductors ranked three of his symphonies in the top 10 symphonies of all time. Oh, man. <laughs> so um, if you remember, Alma was also into composing. And sure. a total of about 17 songs written by her survive. Um, 14 were published during her lifetime in three publications from 1910, 1915, and 1924. Uh, the first two volumes appeared under the name Alma Maria Schindler Mahler, and the last volume was published as Funtgeschange by Alma Maria Mahler. The cover of the 1915 set was illustrated by the doll-loving madman Oscar oh Kokoschka. Oh God, he can't, she can't escape him. Um, three additional songs of hers were discovered in manuscript repositories post- posthumously. Um, oh. Two of them were published in the year 2000 and one was published in 2018. Oh, hey. Her personal papers, including music manuscripts, are held at the University of Pennsylvania, the Austrian National Library in Vienna, and the Bavarian State Library in Munich. Amazing. That's the bananas that life is, of the most beautiful woman in Vienna. The most beautiful and horrible woman in Vienna. <laughs> that is an absolute banana crackers story. I loved every second of it. This, you know what? I'm going to submit this episode to the Emmys of podcasting. <laughs> to the potties. Yes. To for your consideration, our Alma Mahler episode. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. That was great. Yes. I was literally at the edge of my seat. You're welcome. And check out that book. Um, I have to now. That looks (laughs) so good. It ended badly. 13 of the Worst Breakups in History by Jennifer Wright. Um, That that chapter is mostly about Oscar Kokoschka and Alma. Yeah. How could it not be? (laughs) So our quiz today is called Gustav and Walter and Franz. A quiz on notable fellows with these names. Question one. Which civil engineer was hired by sculptor Auguste Bartholdi to devise the interior structure for a colossal gift from their mutual home country to the United States in the 19th century? You might know him better for a major contribution to the 1889 Universal Exposition. Question two. What's the name of that pretty great dude from Edinburgh who authored famous novels Ivanhoe, Rob Roy, and The Lady of the Lake? Question three. This French realist painter found success with A Burial at Ornon and The Stonebreakers during the 1851 Salon in Paris, though he switched gears during the following decade and faced notoriety after painting The Origin of the World and Sleep. Which artist went on to join the radical socialist Paris Commune, for which he was ultimately exiled from France? Question four. As a result of his interest in astrology, which English composer began writing orchestral movements such as Mars, Venus, and Jupiter in 1914? Question five. Which American film actor led a prolific career playing characters who included Whiplash Willie Gingrich, Oscar Madison, twice, and Max Goldman, also twice? Question six. This 19th century Hungarian piano virtuoso ticks all the boxes. He was a prolific composer, conductor, organist, teacher, and writer. In fact, the levels of hysteria demonstrated by his fans inspired a term that titled a 1975 film about his life and a 2009 song by the band Phoenix. Who is this acclaimed pianist? He was friends with our boy Chopin, which gift catalogs for musicians never failed to remind us. Question seven. Who is the namesake of the NFL's Man of the Year Award, which honors a football player's volunteer and charity work as well as their excellence on the field? He wore number 34 and was beloved by those in the Windy City. Question 8. His name has become synonymous with the term used to describe concepts and situations reminiscent of this author's works, especially of the kind seen in Der Prozess and Die Verwandlung. Don't let it bug you to hear the titles in German. Who is this bohemian novelist whose estate executor blatantly ignored his instructions to destroy all unfinished works? Question 9. The debut publication of this mustachioed 19th century French author was about an eponymous character who lived beyond her means in order to escape the banalities and emptiness of provincial life. Uh, Her name escapes me. Hest, Malva, Dolores? Uh, Anyway, who was this perfectionist who nearly escaped conviction on charges of immorality in his serialized story? And finally, question 10. The heir presumptive to the Austria-Hungary throne really did get taken out on June 28, 1914 in Sarajevo. What's the name of this man who you probably recognize in name only? I'll give you about a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. The loveliest girl in Vienna 
who was Alma, the smartest as well. Once you picked her up on your antenna, you'd never be free of her spell. Her lovers were many and varied from the day she began her begin. There were three famous ones whom she married, and God knows how many between. Alma, tell us, all modern women are jealous. Which of your magical wands got you Gustav and Walter and Franz? one she married was Mahler, whose buddies all knew him as Gustav, and each time he saw her he'd holler, ach, that is the Fräulein I must have. Their marriage, however, was murder, he'd scream to the heavens above, I'm writing das Lied von der Erde, and she only wants to make love. Alma, tell us. All modern women are jealous. You should have a statue in bronze for bagging Gustav and Walter and Franz. I have no idea on a lot of these. And the reason why is because I didn't eat any dinner. So I, <laughs> I, am, I am a little brain dead on a lot of things. Right now, oh, so the three names were Gustav, Walter, Walter, and Franz. And Franz. Okay, hit it, hit it, hit me. Do you like a granola bar or something? I didn't need anything. I went oh to the gym. I came home. I showered. Need a granola bar or something? Do I need one? Yeah. Oh no, I'm fine. Okay. I'll just have some rice when I get home. It's All okay. Right. All right. Question. It's my one. fault. <laughs> question one. Which civil engineer was hired by sculptor Auguste Bertoldi to devise the interior structure for a colossal gift from their mutual home country to the United States in the 19th century? You might know him better for a major contribution to the 1889 Universal Exposition. Okay, so that is uh, that is Lady Liberty, correct? I mean, the, not, not the answer, but that's the mm-hmm. sculpture we're talking mm-hmm. about. So I'm thinking the answer is Franz... You nope. might know him better for a major contribution to the 1889 Universal Exposition. Uh, Something that's still around today. Oh. It wasn't meant to be there forever. No, of course not. Because it's the... <laughs> I'm so sorry. My brain. Um, I don't know. What is it? Gustav. Gustav. Gustavo. The Gustav Tower. <laughs> the Gustav Tower. The Gustav Tower of Terror. <laughs> That's just Alma's house. <laughs> Gustav Eiffel. Oh my God. <laughs> just cut all of that out. Oh my We're God. They're going to kick me out. They're going to kick me out. They're going to kick me out of the trivia world. I'm so sorry to everyone. I'm so sorry to all of our triviality brothers. I'm so sorry, everyone. Gustav Eiffel. Gustav Tower. 1889. What's wrong with me? I should have eaten a granola bar. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, go ahead, please. Uh, After his retirement from engineering, Eiffel focused on research into meteorology and aerodynamics, making significant contributions in both fields. His first aerodynamic experiments, which were an investigation of the air resistance of surfaces, was carried out by dropping things with a measuring apparatus down a cable stretched between the second level of the Eiffel Tower and the ground. Oh, my God. So he used his own like structure to do science experiments too. Um, Eiffel definitively established um, that the air resistance of a body was closely related to the square of the air speed, which people like still use today as like a, you know, um, a calculation. Yeah. That's amazing. Question two. What's the name of that pretty great dude from Edinburgh who authored famous novels, Ivanhoe, Rob Roy, and the lady of the lake. Is that Sir Walter Scott? It is Sir Walter Uh, Scott. uh, uh, Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. You're back. Yeah. Scotland loves this dude. All right. Oh, my God. Um, but for some reason, as serious writers turn from romanticism to realism, some other writers regarded him as an author only suitable for children. 
In Life on the Mississippi, crotchety old man Mark Twain satirized the impact of Scott's writing, stating that Scott, quote, had so large a hand in making Southern character as it existed before the Civil War that he is in great measure responsible for the war. And he coined the term Sir Walter Scott disease, which he blamed for the South's lack of advancement. Twain what? also targeted Scott in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, where he named a sinking boat the Walter Scott. Oh, my God. I don't God. know what the hell Walter Scott did to did crotchy old man Mark Twain, but he sure yeah he took sure a bite of him. did not like him took a bite Jeez. of him. Question three: This French realist painter found success with a burial at Ornol and the Stonebreakers during the 1851 Salon in Paris. Though he switched gears during the following decade and faced notoriety after painting *The Origin of the World* and *Sleep*. Which artist went on to join the radical socialist Paris Commune for which he was ultimately exiled from France? Okay. This is a Walter? Nope. No. It It is a French name. Gustave Flaubert. No, it's not Flaubert. I know that. Is it Flaubert? No. (laughs) Okay. You're making a face at me. Um, L'origine du monde. The painting. You know, I know. You know that painting. I know exactly what painting we're talking about. Um, not safe for Stone work, breakers. everyone. Stonebreakers. Um, Gustav, all I can think of is Flaubert. I'm sorry. Who is it? Gustav Corbet. Corbet, damn it. Um, Corbet was an active socialist and was imprisoned for six months in 1871 for his involvement with the Paris Commune, which was a revolutionary government that ruled Paris um, from March 18th to May 28th, 1871. Paris was basically under siege for four months. So the Third Republic actually moved its capital from Paris to Tours. Um, Mm -hmm. Corbet came up with the idea to destroy the Vendôme column honoring the victories of Napoleon I. And after his imprisonment, he was ordered to pay the cost to put the column back up but he couldn't pay. Uh, Corbet lived in exile in Switzerland from 1873 until his death. Um, So he started out doing like landscapes Mm -hmm. and like people working with rocks. And then he was like, you know what? Here's a vagina and here's two ladies in bed together. (laughs) And people were like, oh, mon Dieu, we cannot see that with our eyeballs. And like some of these, like I think um, one of those paintings wasn't even exhibited until like the 1980s. I mean, i it makes perfect sense because if you shock the French, <laughs> you, it's amazing he wasn't imprisoned for that. He probably would have been better off being in Austria oh, at that yeah. point in time. Him and Kakashka would have been best buds. <laughs> oh my God. That's our new play. That's our new play. Oh my God. <laughs> Kakashka and Corbet, a love story. I love this. It'll be dark. It'll be sexy. It'll be bloody. It'll be dark. It'll be sexy, Very dark. question mark. <laughs> I love it. No one steal that idea. <laughs> question four. As a result of his interest in astrology, which English composer began writing orchestral movements such as Mars, Venus, and Jupiter in 1914? There's a whole episode of Lewis about this mm-hmm. where the, the Oxford... Um, chamber orchestra plays the planets mm-hmm. and it is by Walter Gustav <laughs> Gustav Flaubert <laughs> so sorry Gustav oh Brian Holst Holst no, I wasn't going to get there. I wasn't going to get to Holst. Holst. Wasn't going to get to Holst. Uh, so The Planets, Opus 32, is a seven-movement orchestral suite by the English composer Gustav Holst, written between 1914 and 1916. Each movement of the suite is named after a planet of the solar system and its corresponding astrological character as defined by Holst. He did not include Earth because the concept of the work was astrological rather than astronomical. Understandable. Uh, and then Pluto was discovered in 1930, which was like a de- more than a decade after he composed all this. Uh-huh. Um, he was still alive then. And um, since it was hailed by astronomers as the ninth planet, Holst actually expressed no interest in writing a movement for the new planet. So he died. <laughs> so after he died, several other composers took a stab at writing a Pluto movement to be played at the end of the symphony, including a very famous in- improvised performance by the Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic oh, in wow. 1972. And FYI, uh, 
Composer John Williams used the melodies and instrumentation of Mars as the inspiration for his soundtrack for the Star Wars films. I have heard Specifically this. the Imperial March. Yes. Because mm-hmm. Mars is very loud and imposing mm-hmm. and warlike. Yes. So that makes perfect sense. Question five. Which American film actor led a prolific career playing characters who included Whiplash Willie Gingrich, Oscar Madison, twice, and Max Goldman, also twice? Walter, mm, I well, ugh, I know this too, and it's <laughs> all I can think of is Walter Mondale, and that is not it. <laughs> no, that is not it. Famous Hollywood it's, star, uh, famous Hollywood star Walter Mondale. Uh, Walter, oh fuck, it start with a G. No, oh, uh, if I if I told you, it's a lot of them are with Jack Lemon. Yeah, no, I know I can see you his face. You know who he is. I know exactly who it is. I just can't think of his last name. Tell well, me some other things he was in then. Um, he was in, uh, he was in, um, the, it was like there's a cruise ship. It's called like Overboard, I think. Um, Walter, uh, it starts with an H? No. Damn it. So give me an H, give me a M. letter. M. Oh, Walter. <laughs> it's not Mondale. What? <laughs> Walter Mondale. Mondale. Walter Mondale keeps walking into my brain and sitting down and being like, it's me. It's not him. Mathow. Mathow. That's it. Walter Mathow. Whoo. Whoo. I'm so sorry. That was a journey. Uh, so he played Whiplash Willie Gingrich in The Fortune Cookie from Billy Wilder in 1966. Um, he was in The Odd Couple and Odd Couple 2 with Jack Lemmon. And he was in Grumpy Old Men and Grumpy old Grumpier men. Old Men, yeah. also with Jack Lemmon. Um, I counted at least 10 films in which they worked together. So oh, yeah, it they were like, best. Yeah, they're yeah. wonderful together. Question six. This 19th century Hungarian piano virtuoso ticks all the boxes. He was a prolific composer, conductor, organist, teacher, and writer. In fact, the levels of hysteria demonstrated by his fans inspired a term that titled a 1975 film about his life and a 2009 song by the band Phoenix. Who is this acclaimed pianist? He was friends with our boy Chopin, which gift catalogs for musicians never fail to remind us. I know this one because it is Franz Liszt. Yes. And it is Listomania that we are talking about. Exactly. So um, as a boy, he studied under Mozart's rival, Antonio Salieri. Uh-oh. Um, listomania was a real thing. And I'm going to tell you about Please it. Please tell me everything. Um, so Franz Liszt was basically like the first like sex symbol musician, Ooh. right? Like he wasn't wearing a powdered wig up there. He didn't have all his frills on. Ooh. He was just like a sexy dude. So admirers of Liszt would swarm over him, fighting over his like handkerchiefs and gloves, basically like grabbing them off of his body. Oh my God. Um, fans would wear his portrait on their brooches and cameos like you would just like walk around and start start buying stuff with his face on it women would try to get locks of his hair and he reportedly bought a dog with the same color and texture of hair so that he could keep up with the demand for it wow um some female admirers followed him around and went through his trash (gasps) apparently some women poured um like the very last bits of his coffee cups in cafes into glass vials. And then they would be able to carry something that had touched his lips around their necks, wherever they went. My God. You know, sometimes I'm like, "Mm, men are crazy. This is awful. Men are the worst. And then I hear stuff like this and I'm like, you know what though? People are crazy. Men had listomania too. Oh oh yeah. No, I mean, it was like they were, it was kind of like the Beatlemania of the, you know, 19th century. Yeah. But you know, Ladies be crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they they weren't allowed to do anything else. You that's know? true. They didn't have TV. That's no. for sure. No, they weren't allowed to have their own jobs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question seven. Who is the namesake of the NFL's Man of the Year Award, which honors a player's volunteer and charity work as well as their excellence on the field? He wore number 34 and was beloved by those in the Windy City. Uh, Walter the Refrigerator Perry. Is that it? No. It's uh, William the Refrigerator oh, Perry. Dang. Oh, very close. The yeah. same letter. Uh-huh. Um, is it Walter? Uh-huh. Okay, it's Walter. I'm sure I've heard this person, but I'm not great about uh, uh, De Bears. So who is it? It's Walter Payton. 
Walter Payton. Okay. Yes. Um, so he was a bear from 1975 to 1987. And Payton was the NFL's all-time leader in rushing yards and all-purpose yards prior to the 2002 NFL season. So like he held the records like mm. for 20 years after he was already done playing. Wow. Um, he died of a really rare liver disease in 1999 mm. and spent his final months on earth as an advocate for organ donation. So Aww. he was, he was for all accounts, a really wonderful person. That's great. Question eight. His name has become synonymous with the term used to describe concepts and situations reminiscent of this author's works, especially of the kind seen in Der Prozess and Die Verwandlung. Don't let it bug you to hear the titles in German. Who is this bohemian novelist whose estate executor blatantly ignored his instructions to destroy all unfinished works? Well, it's not Machiavelli. Nope. Um, uh, Goethe? Don't let it bug you to hear the titles in German. Okay, Spider... Gustav Spiderman. Um, <laughs> oh, not a bug. Sorry. That's an arachnid. Um, beetle, Beetlejuice. Um, uh, cricket. Mm. Uh, His name has become synonymous with the term used to describe concepts and situations reminiscent of these works. Reminiscent of these works. So something is like Something in... Something-esque. Something-esque. Ooh. Uh, Kafka. Yes. Kafka-esque. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, since, you're being, since you're hypoglycemic right now, well, you get, you get so some weak. help. Um, oh. So Franz Kafka, his best-known works include uh, Die Verwandlung, which is the metamorphosis, Der Prozess, The Trial, and Das Schloss, The Castle. Um, Kafka was virtually unknown during his own lifetime, but he didn't consider fame important. Oh, no. No. Um, he rose to fame rapidly after his death, though, in 1924 from laryngeal tuberculosis, oh, particularly after World War II is when he became famous. And his friend Max Brode, who was the executor of his estate, ignored Kafka's instructions to destroy his papers. And Brode is really the reason why he became a popular author. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Interesting. Question nine. The debut publication of this mustachioed 19th century French author was about an eponymous character who lived beyond her means in order to escape the banalities and emptiness of provincial life. Her name escapes me. Hest? Mulva? Dolores? Anyway, who was this perfectionist who nearly escaped conviction on charges of immorality in his serialized story? Is it George? Is that... I'm trying to get the... the Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) Jerry Seinfeld. Um, no, don't listen. The to author, me. the author's name. Yeah. Um, is it French author? Um, is it The Awakening? Is that the the novel we're talking nope. about? Nope, that's English, I guess, or American. It's actually American. Damn the it. French. Who's what's a good French name on that list you're looking at? Uh, mm, Gustave. Is that a French name? Okay, great, good. I'm, I'm heading that way. <laughs> Gustave. Um. Oh, she just fell asleep. <laughs> sorry. Uh, who is it? Just tell me. I'm so sorry. I wish I could participate more. Gustav. You've said his name like three times tonight. Walter Mondale? <laughs> Walter Mondale, famous author of the of the of the novel Madame Bovary. Madame um, Bovary, that's it. <laughs> so the same tribunal that found oh, no. um, that found Walter Mondale guilty uh, found the poet Charles Baudelaire guilty on the same charge for his collection of poetry called Les Fleurs du Mal in 1857. Walter Mondale believed in and pursued the principle of finding le mot juste, the right word, which he considered as the key means to achieve quality in literary art. And Vladimir Nabokov said that the greatest literary influence upon Kafka was Walter Mondale. Walter Mondale looked... <laughs> And so many that's gonna come up in Geek Bowl and everyone's gonna write Walter Mondale. We're gonna get kicked out. We're gonna get kicked out. Oh Walter Mondale loathed pretty pretty pose and he would have applauded Kafka's attitude. 
Walter Mondale, famous mustachioed 19th century French author. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and finally, question 10. <laughs> the heir presumptive to the Austria-Hungary throne really did get taken out on June 28, 1914 in Sarajevo. What's the name of this man who you probably recognize in name only? That's Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm really surprised you didn't have a question about Walter Mondale. <laughs> Ferdinand. All right. Um, so first, Franz and his wife were visiting the Austria-Hungarian province of Bosnia and Herzegovina that June. Earlier in the day, the couple had been attacked by a man who had thrown a grenade at their car. Oh <laughs> However, God. the bomb detonated behind them, injuring um, injuring the occupants in the in the car that was behind them. Jeez. So after a short rest at the governor's residence, the royal couple insisted on seeing all of those who had been injured by the bomb at the local hospital. Oh. But no one had told the drivers that their itinerary had been changed and the drivers had to like turn around. Uh-oh. Um, so as the vehicles were backing down the street and onto a side street, the line of cars stalled. And at oh, this no. time, 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip was sitting at a cafe across the street, and he seized this opportunity to shoot at the royal couple. Sophie was shot in the abdomen while Franz was shot in the neck, and they died on the way to the hospital. Oh, my God. This led to Austria-Hungary's declaration of war against Serbia, which in turn triggered a series of events that eventually led to Austria-Hungary's allies and Serbia's declaring war on each other starting World War I, mm-hmm. without which we would not have Walter Mondale. <laughs> it all comes full circle. That's the that's the kind of quality and storytelling that you can expect from Misinformation, a trivia podcast with Lauren and Julia. <laughs> I am so sorry, everyone. <laughs> now we got to do an episode on Walter Mondale. Do we? <laughs> no, we do not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I want him to remain a mystery. Um, so we did get um, some listener submitted trivia. Should we sing? Ready? Here we go. Listeners submitted trivia. Oh, wow. Very good. That's the best one we've done so far. Um, so this week's listener submitted trivia comes from a, uh, a very devoted listener named Dave L. Thank you, Dave. Um, he tells us that uh, the word calculus, um, this is thanks to our math episode uh, starring our good friend Eric C. Calculus comes from the Latin word calculus, which referred to small stones used as reckoning counters. Uh, he says, in my head, I imagine a similarity to an abacus. Oh, okay. Uh, this small stone sense shows up in medical references to kidney stones called calculi and shares etymology with the word calcium. Huh. Yeah. How about that? So thanks so much for that, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Um, Yeah. (laughs) If you would like to, I don't know, send me a diatribe about who Walter Mondale actually is. um, Or yell at me because I could not remember the words Eiffel Tower. uh, Please. Feel free to email misinformation misinformation at gmail.com. I know she was like she was like literally making the shape with both of her hands. Um misinfopod at gmail.com thank you. is our is our email address. Just, Lauren needs to go. You know what? Something. Just I'll just this. finish this out. Just take it okay. out. All right. Goodbye. Uh, so you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at misinfopod. We have a Facebook page, Misinformation, a trivia podcast. We also have a website, www.misinfopod.com, where you can stream us, you can listen to us there, and you can listen to us uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. So this is Julia for Lauren, my co-host. It's falling apart over here. Please rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> Wait. We might catch you next time. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Bye. Bye.